Open your Bibles up to Obadiah. It's only one chapter. Uh, if you have one of our Bibles from the welcome table, it's on page 820. We're going to be finishing up the, the, the book of Obadiah this morning. Quick recap, it's, uh, Obadiah is a minor prophet, right? Minor doesn't mean insignificant, it just means short versus all the other uh, prophets uh, in, in Scripture. There's 12 of them that are shorter, that, that are the minors, and, uh, and then the other ones are the longer ones, the major prophets. The shortest book in the Old Testament is Obadiah. But again, it summarizes this major theme from the whole of Scripture. And this theme is that it, the relationship between God and, and man that he created. God created mankind to know him, to serve him, to love him, to be with him in love for all eternity. But every human being has sinned against God and made themselves God's enemy through their sin. Right? We've broken this relationship that God created for us, but God gave us a way to be reconciled to him through the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the whole of scripture tells us. That's the grand narrative that's going on, right? But Obadiah makes it clear that there's a sovereign God of the universe, the king over all things, and this God has enemies, and this God has covenant people. Obadiah is the only prophetic book that addressed specifically uh, a foreign nation and not directly God's people, God's covenant people. And even though he's prophesying against this nation, against Edom, we'll see that today's passage, in today's passage, that it's ultimately an act of grace for God to do that. Yes, it's a warning. Yes, it's impending doom and judgment that's coming, but it's an act of grace for God to let them know. He doesn't have to do that. And because it's included in Scripture, which is God's word for God's people, his covenant people, Obadiah uh, served as a source of hope not only for the people of Israel, but now also for us as new covenant people in Christ. We have something to take away from Obadiah. It's not just Old Testament. We can kick it out the door. It's vital. It helps us understand even more what God has given to us in Christ and be reminded that God is, in fact, a promise-keeping God. And so last week we saw what God promised to do to Edom and to every other nation that opposes him and his people. And today we're going to finish up Obadiah's prophecy by looking at what God promised to do for his people, for his covenant people, and why he's able then to keep those promises. It's a message that, uh, of hope that points to God's sovereign rule, again, over all things at all times for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And so my prayer for us in today's passage is that the prophecy of of Obadiah as a whole, not just in today's passage, but, but the prophecy of Obadiah as a whole will, will convince both believer and unbeliever alike that God is not only the king, but that we ought to trust him as our king. So I want to read Obadiah verses 17 through 21 and then pray and we'll, we'll jump in this morning. He's just uh, finished prophesying the judgment of Edom and the nations, and he says this, but there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossessed them. The house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, and Joseph, the house of Joseph, a burning flame. But the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survivor will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." 
people from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the ter- territories of Ephraim and Samaria, while Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites who are in Hala and who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. Father, we thank you again for your word. Lord, I thank you that we can open this week after week after week, and it will say the same thing over and over and over. It's true and steadfast. You've given us your spirit to gain wisdom as we look into it, seeking you, seeking Christ, who's given us life through it. So we pray that that would happen this morning, that you'd be glorified and we would be encouraged as your people. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we prayed this morning through that First Peter passage, and we talked about it last week, but it's a good reminder for us, I think even when we just wake up in the morning, that we live as strangers and exiles in this world, right? It's super easy for us to get comfortable and forget that. It's really easy for us to get focused on all the things that are happening in our, in our world and in our country and, and forget that we're citizens of a different kingdom. See, we're not where we want to be, but we continue to wait for our King Jesus to return and take us there. But that waiting gets pretty exhausting at times, doesn't it? Right? We grow weary from waiting. We know that Jesus promised us that this world, we would have trouble. So we're not necessarily looking for, you know, rainbows and butterflies here all the time and all of that stuff. But we, we, we know that he's told us to take heart because he's overcome the world. But it, there, there's so many times, especially lately, it feels like that the world is overcoming us. And it can be easy for us to lose our patience. But when that happens, we begin to want judgment for those around us that we see in opposition to God rather than mercy And we focus on God rescuing us from this world rather than God rescuing people in this world from sin. Now, the whole Bible ends with, come Lord Jesus, come. We ought to be praying for that. We ought to be seeking that. But while we wait, the Lord has given us something to do. And we're going to see what that is. And we know what that is. So we need to remember this. This is, what, this is what Obadiah 17 through 21 is going to tell us this morning. God will save all of his people, and we will rule with him forever. So we should trust him as our king. Whatever he's doing right now, we can't always see that clearly, but we do know this. He is going to save all his people. We will rule with him forever so we should trust him as our king. We're going to see this play out in our passage today in three parts. The deliverance of God's people, the repossession of the land, and the proclamation of God's kingdom. So let's look at the deliverance of God's people, verse 17. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy, because of er, the house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, and the house of Joseph a burning flame. But the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. 
Therefore, no survivor will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. See, there's a turning of the tables that's happening here. We, we, we started to see this last week when God pronounced judgment on Edom and the nations in the day of the Lord that was coming. If you remember from verse 14, Edom was indicted for standing at the crossroads to cut off Judah's fugitives as they escaped, right? As they, as they fled Jerusalem. And for handing them over, the, the, the survivors, to the Babylonian invaders. The Hebrew word for deliverance in verse 17 is similar to the word used for fugitives in verse 14. Obadiah is pulling these two things together. You see, Edom kept Judah from escaping, but God will provide escape for his people. Edom delivered them into the hands of the enemy, but God will deliver his people from the hands of the enemy. Edom sought to make sure that no survivor remained in the house of Judah, but God will make sure that no survivor would remain in the house of Esau. And once again, in these verses, we see God's retributive justice taking place, right? Verse 15, as you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. See, the penalty matches the the crime because God is just. But notice that the Lord has spoken through Obadiah in verse 17. What he said here, he's not gonna leave Jerusalem in ruin, Last week we saw him refer to Jerusalem in verse 16 as my holy mountain, right? And now here he calls it Mount Zion, and he doesn't say that there will be a deliverance from Mount Zion. He says there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion. It's a promise of restoration. People won't be fleeing Jerusalem anymore. They'll be flocking back to it. Jerusalem was the city where God dwelled among his people because that's where the temple was. That's where God decided to to make his name known, to make his presence known to the people. But the city and the temple, they were defiled by God's people because they were idolatrous and they adopted pagan practices from foreign nations. The city wasn't holy anymore. But God says that when he delivers his people, Mount Zion will once again be holy. He's going to purify it by purging of wickedness through the judgment of his enemies and the cleansing of his people. You notice he, uh, Isaiah, it's not Isaiah, it's Obadiah. We're in Obadiah, okay? Um, Obadiah says, uh, talks about fire and stubble here. The house of Judah, the house of Joseph, be a burning flame, raging fire. The house of Esau will be stubble. These terms are used all throughout the Old Testament to refer to God's judgment of the wicked. And Jesus alluded to it in the parable of the wheat in the weeds in Matthew 13. If you remember that parable, the wheat represented God's people and the weeds represented God's enemies. And at the end of, of, of time, when Jesus returns, he called it the harvest in the parable. The day of judgment for all mankind it says the wheat will be gathered in the barns and the weeds will be gathered in bundles and be consumed by what? Fire. In the, in the book of Revelation, in the final judgment against Satan and all the rest of God's enemies, it involves fire coming down from heaven and consuming them, and then them being cast into the lake of fire while they be tormented day and night forever. Fire, stubble, this is God's judgment. But fire is also used to refer to, refer to God's purification of his people. In the Old Testament, God talks about refining his people through the fires of trial and tribulation in order to purify their faith in him. Peter writes about it in the New Testament to encourage believers to endure grief in various trials because those trials only last for a short time and they prove the character of one's faith. 
like gold refined by fire. It's in First Peter chapter 1. We read from chapter 2 this morning for our prayer time. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus' disciples on the day of Pentecost, it was described as what? Tongues of fire coming to rest on each of them. One of the Holy Spirit's primary roles in the life of every believer is sanctification. It's cleansing and purifying God's people and setting them apart as holy. In verse 18, Obadiah says that Edom's time of judgment will come and God will use his people as his instruments of justice against Edom like fire consuming stubble. Now the term house here, the house of Jacob, the house of Joseph, the house of Esau, that, that, that's, a, that's a term that encompasses the king and his kingdom, the, 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 the king and the people. The house of Jacob and the house of Joseph were names for the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel, respectively. We talked about that history last week. Northern kingdom was attacked and conquered by Assyria about 150 years before the southern kingdom was attacked and conquered by the Babylonians. It seems here that God is promising not just to restore the people of Judah, but all of his people as a whole. How encouraging is that? That God has not forgotten his people. He's not overlooked some of them for the sake of others. God gives us even more clarity on this by what he said through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37. He says, tell them this is what the Lord God says. I'm going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will rule over all of them. They will no longer be two nations, will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their abhorrent things, and all their transgressions. I will save them. Deliverance will come. I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Mount Zion will be holy. Back in Ezekiel chapter 25, he says this about Edom. This is what the Lord God says. Because Edom acted vengefully against the house of Judah and incurred grievous guilt by taking revenge on them. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off both people and animals from it. I will make it a wasteland. They will fall by the sword from Taman to Dadan. I will take my vengeance on Edom through my people Israel and they will deal with Edom according to my anger and wrath. So they will know my vengeance. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Same God. Two very different messages to two very different groups of people. God's going to judge his enemies and he's going to cleanse his people. Mount Zion will once again be holy. In verse 17, Obadiah says, the house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. This is phrasing that's meant to remind God's people of the the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in which he promised to give them the land of Canaan as their possession. And Obadiah uses the same phrasing in the next two verses to show that God has not forgotten his people or the covenant that he made with them. And that brings us to the repossession of the land. Look at verse 19 and 20. People from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau, Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria, while Benjamin will possess Gilead, the exiles of the Israelites who are in Hala and and who are among the Canaanites. 
as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. Now, that's a lot of different places, a lot of different names. Some of them you can look up and find others, like uh, Sepharad. There's uh, differing opinions on where that is. But here's the thing. Those places cover north, south, east, and west. In all of the land that God had promised originally to give his people through the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and renewed through Moses. Obadiah also mentions people from both kingdoms again. Ephraim and Samaria are references to the northern kingdom of Israel. Benjamin's a reference to the southern kingdom of Judah. The point that Obadiah is making here, this is what we need to just know from these verses, is that God will restore all of his people from all directions. No matter how far away they've been exiled, he will remember his covenant with them and will bring them back into the land that he promised to give them and they will possess it again. Note how the word possess is the dominant verb in these two verses. See, God knows even when a sparrow falls to the ground. Don't you think he knows where his people are? How much more precious are we to him than even the sparrow? In the old covenant under Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, renewed in Moses. God's presence and blessings among his people were, were inseparably tied to the possession of a physical land, physical territory. And so the promise to bring the exiles back to the land wasn't just like, oh, real estate, sweet. No, it was a promise of God's blessing and his presence, which the people felt like had left them because they were uh, they were put into exile. They were sent away from, from the place where God dwelt as punishment. It was a promise that he had not abandoned them and that he would restore them as his own possession. Now, we are reading this not as members of the old covenant, but as members of the new covenant in Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that through Christ, we now have come to Mount Zion. We're in America. How is that possible? Well, he's talking about the heavenly city. The heavenly Jerusalem is what he says. God's presence and blessing are now no longer tied to a physical land. Instead, they're tied to his Holy Spirit who now dwells permanently in every believer and unites us together as his holy temple. You see, we have God's promise that he will never leave us nor abandon us, and he sealed that promise by giving us his Holy Spirit. So no matter where we spread out in the world, God is there with us. If you're a believer who has fallen deep into grievous sin and you feel like your sin is far greater than God can go to forgive you, you need to hear what Obadiah is saying here. This is a promise that offers hope even to the worst of sinners. God went to such great lengths to bring his exiles back to the physical land under the old covenant. How much more then will God in his power and might and, and will he be willing and able to bring you back to himself under the new covenant in Christ? No matter how far you've gone astray in your sin, we need to understand that Christ has purchased us as his possession. And he never loses what God has given to him because he sits on the throne and he rules over all things. So you can come to him 
find deliverance, forgiveness, restoration. Look at verse 21. This is, leads us into the proclamation of God's kingdom. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now, if Obadiah is speaking into a microphone while he's giving this prophecy, this is where he holds it out, drops it, and walks away, right? This is that kind of moment. This is the end-all statement that puts everybody in their rightful place. God is on the throne. The enemies are defeated, and his people are restored. Back in the first nine verses, when Obadiah spoke of Edom's pride, he mentioned that their home was on the heights, right? We looked at, well, you can see the actual place. It's still there. It's this mountainous region. He referred to it as the hill country of Esau. That same phrase shows up again in verse 19 and, and then again here in verse 21. There's a, a, an interesting translation that's only found here in this where Obadiah refers to it. It can also be translated as Mount Esau. And in verse 21, Obadiah pits two mountains against each other. Mount Zion and Mount Esau. Guess which one wins? You see, there's only one king of the hill, and it's not Edom. It's the Lord. But Obadiah holds out hope even for Edom in verse 21. We've, we've seen God's, God's judgment is going to be devastating on this. Uh, we know that, that the promise, uh, that he kept his promise, that the nation of Edom no longer exists, right? And yet there's hope for Edom in verse 21. God could have said, saviors will ascend Mount Zion to destroy the hill country of Esau. But instead he says, saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau. These saviors will deliver God's people from their enemies, but they won't be agents of vengeance. They'll be governors of righteousness as representatives of God the King. Now the prophets Joel and Amos are the two books that come right before Obadiah in the Bible, and they help us together understand the bigger picture of what Obadiah is pointing to in verse 21. Joel prophesied that God would pour out his spirit on all the nations so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Does that phrase sound familiar to you? If you've read Romans 10, it will, because Paul quotes Joel in Romans 10 to point to salvation, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles through faith in Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Amos chapter 9, Amos says, in that day, God says through Amos, in that day I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. We go to Acts chapter 15, and Jesus' brother James quotes Amos to show that it was always God's plan to save not only Jews, but also Gentiles. To save for himself a people from among all the nations and not just for Israel. If it goes beyond the physical land, it also goes beyond the physical people. How did God plan to do that? Through the proclamation of the gospel, Jesus Christ. See, anyone, anyone who hears it and believes it will be saved from the Israelites to the Edomites to the nations in every corner of the earth. Mark's gospel, if you remember, tells us that Jesus came proclaiming the good news of God, that the kingdom of God has come near, and Jesus called people to repent and to believe the good news. 
Mark 3 says that people came from all over to follow Jesus, including some from the region of Edomia, a.k.a. Edom. Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom through his death and resurrection, and before he ascended into heaven, he told the disciples this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, the kingdom is the Lord's. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So now we serve as ambassadors of the King, not as agents of wrath, but as governors of grace going out into the world and pleading with people to be reconciled to God through Christ. This is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. And the kingdom of heaven continues to advance, right? It's defeating God's enemies, not by their physical destruction, but through a spiritual washing and renewal as God makes their dead hearts alive in Christ and they hear the gospel and they believe it. Titus 3, Ephesians 2. You see, God is destroying not the people but he's destroying their wickedness and he's making them holy. This is what he's doing. This is why we're waiting. And we actually get to participate in that. The new covenant kingdom of God is advancing far beyond the bounds of the old covenant land. Whenever and wherever the gospel is preached and those who hear it believe it, Obadiah 17 through 21 is finding fulfillment right here, right now. God is bringing exiles and enemies under his loving rule. And in the book of Revelation, it tells us that a day is coming when a new song will be sung. Magnifying Christ the King as the one worthy to open the scroll. Why? Because he was slaughtered and he purchased a people for God by his blood from where? Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people and nation. And he made them a kingdom of priests who will reign on the earth. We need to know that that includes people from Menonk, Illinois. And not just us. We need to know that that includes people from Winona and Rutland and Dana and Toluca and La Rose and the rest of the Fieldcrest School District and El Paso and Gridley and Roanoke and Benson and on and on and on and all these small towns that people just drive through and don't give a second wink to. Why will they be there? Because God has brought you and me near to Christ. And he sent us into these towns. Well, I've lived here my whole life. Yeah, God put you here. We're imports, my family. But it's all God's doing. He brought us near to himself through Christ and he's put us in these places, in these towns, so that we can bring Christ near to those who are still far from God. And we do that by praying for God's kingdom to come here as it is in heaven and proclaiming the good news of that kingdom to those around us. Christ has come. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe the good news. Now, is that always easy for us to do? No. Will we encounter rejection and hostility from others because of it? Probably. Yes. At some point, if not already. 
but our lives are firmly in the hands of the one who sovereignly rules over all things at all times for all his people and his own glory. Think about all that God had to manage in order to bring Christ into history when he did. All the people that wanted to kill him and couldn't do it until he willingly gave himself on the cross. God has a plan, and he's working it out. We've been sent out by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When we keep that truth in the forefront of our minds, we ought to have greater peace in the midst of the trials that we endure individually and as believers together as the body of Christ. And we'll have greater boldness to keep sharing the gospel, greater confidence that the Spirit will use the truth of the gospel to rescue God's enemies from the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of the Son He loves, Colossians 1. And the beauty of the gospel is that the King of the universe stayed His hand of judgment and extended His hand of mercy to a world full of His enemies. Not one person deserved it. He did that by sending his own son into it to make us his friends. And Christ did that by living a completely righteous life and then dying on the cross for unrighteous sinners so that all who rely on his sacrifice receive his righteousness and are cleansed from their sin, purified, made holy. And he rose from the grave to show that our promise-keeping God has in fact defeated the power of the true enemies of sin, Satan, and death. God dispossessed those enemies when he sealed us with his Holy Spirit. Think about that. We're his possession now. And that Holy Spirit applies God's righteousness to us in this life and gives us sure hope in the promise of that day yet to come when all of God's people will be gathered from all parts of the world to live forever with God in the new Jerusalem under his loving rule forever. It's coming. See, true deliverance is coming for all of God's people because Jesus Christ, the true Israel, the greater Israel, the true Savior, he ascended the true Mount Zion to rule over the nations as Lord and the kingdom is his. Now, as someone who has been delivered, don't you want that deliverance for others? If we withhold the gospel from those that we consider to be our enemies, we are withholding the grace that God has freely given to us. Grace that we didn't earn or deserve, it wouldn't be grace otherwise. It's the whole definition of it. It's tempting for us to want to be agents of vengeance on God's behalf, right? We're wired for for justice. We want to see justice done. That's a God-given thing. It's reflective of our creator who made us in his image. Tempting for us to to want to just leave this world behind and say, you get what you deserve. But we need to remember that vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to us. Instead, what's God called us to? How has God called us to conquer our enemies? Not with vengeance, but with grace. Think about it. Is there anyone that you've avoided sharing the gospel with? Out of anger, out of hatred, out of feeling like they don't deserve it? 
What if you're condemning someone that God wants to save? Why not share the gospel with them and let the king decide? He's going to decide. Why would you want to miss out on that opportunity to see him transform a life when you know that he's transformed yours? Why did we pick Obadiah? What's the message here? God is king. And as king, God has enemies who oppose him and covenant people who've surrendered to him. He rules over all people. He rules over his enemies in judgment and he rules over his people in grace. Obadiah's message is God's message. Did you catch all the times that we read through verse one? This is what the Lord God had said. We have heard a message from the Lord. Verse four, this is the Lord's declaration. Verse eight, this is the Lord's declaration. Verse 18, for the Lord has spoken. So what makes you one of God's enemies? It's rejection of the message, of God's message. What makes you one of God's covenant people? It's reliance on God's message. Rejection of God's word leads to rebellion against God and reliance upon yourself. But reliance upon God's word leads to reconciliation with God and rejection of your own selfish ways and the ways of this world. So the question that Obadiah leaves us to answer is this. Are you rejecting or are you relying on what God has said? If you believe God's message in Obadiah, then the logical response is to believe his message in Christ through the gospel because all of what God has said in the Bible points us to Jesus and Obadiah is just a a mini version of that. As creator of all things, God is judge of all things and ruler of all things. Every nation will know that God is Lord, but the hope of the gospel tells us that, that people from every nation will know God as Lord. Is he yours? Is Christ your king? If not, then on whom or what will you rely when you stand before your creator and your judge, the one who rules over your life whether you believe it or not? If you don't rely on Christ, then you need to know that you've put your hope in stubble. It won't stand. God won't stay his hand of judgment forever. That day is coming one way or the other and none of us will escape it. We will all stand before the Lord to give an account of our lives and only those who've relied on Christ alone will have something to say. Only those who have made Jesus their refuge will find deliverance on Mount Zion and be saved from the fire of eternal judgment. Only those who know Christ as their king will enter his kingdom. So if you're not a believer, don't miss what God has done through Obadiah. This is to an unbelieving nation. God has given them a warning of the coming judgment and showed them how he will follow through with it. Is is that not grace offered to his enemies? Isn't that what God does? Isn't that what he has done for us? Will you ignore the warning as Edom did? Will you deny that grace or will you turn from your sin and trust in Christ and be reconciled to God? 
You see, our sin, it's ours. Our sin has made every one of us God's enemy. It's only his grace to us through Christ that has rescued us and made us his covenant people. Everyone who enters God's kingdom will do so only because we have heard the message and believed it. And we've relied on Christ as a result to save us from his judgment. He has made his message known to you. Will you believe it? You see, God will save all his people and we will rule with him forever and so we should trust him as our king. As followers of Christ, Obadiah's message offers us a great deal of hope. This isn't just some random, obscure passage in the Bible that's long forgotten. It shouldn't be at least. Our God is a promise-keeping God. He will not let any injustice go unpunished. That makes him a righteous king. But Christ has taken our punishment, and that makes him a gracious king. And so as people made holy by this king, let's be governors of the gospel to our neighborhoods and to the nations rather than people who seek vengeance and destruction. Let's pray for God to exercise his rule over all people, not through judgment, but through mercy. Let's pray that his kingdom come and his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven as we trust his spirit and his word to defeat his enemies with grace and make them his covenant people, holy and blameless before him. Let's be people who see Obadiah's vision not as something that happened in the past, not as something that's coming in the future, but something that is being fulfilled in an ever-expanding way right here and now as we participate in the work that God's given us to do while we wait for our king to return, all for his good, his glory, and our good. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Obadiah. We thank you for the message of grace. We thank you for the truth that's in here that helps us know who you are, be reminded of it. We thank you for the warning that you've given to your enemies. We thank you, God, that you've saved us and rescued us, not by anything we've done, but solely by your mercy and love. So we pray that you would help us as we wait to hold fast, to seek your kingdom and all its righteousness, to pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, let us see your mercy change lives, subdue your enemies, bring more people into your kingdom. Let us be participants in that as we are proclaimers of the gospel. Lord, let your word come out of our mouths. Let people hear it and believe for the glory of Christ our King. Amen.